Welcome to CVM Stories, the podcast on customer value management. Together, we explore how companies can be more successful and the customers happier through the use of latest customer value management techniques. Learn key commercial and analytical insights from telecoms, retail, finance, and other industries that drive CVM forward. Welcome to CVM Stories. I'm your host, Egidius, and today our guest is Ignas Zhurauskas. Ignas is one of the most senior consultants at Exacaster. We will talk about the key challenges Ignas sees when working with customer value management teams around the world. He will share his insights and experience in this field. So, let's dive in. CVM Stories is produced by Exacaster. We help companies take their customer value management to the next level. To stay updated on our latest episodes, subscribe to the podcast or sign up for an email newsletter at exacaster.com slash cvmstories. Welcome, Ignas. Hi, Gideus. Nice to have you here. So uh, let, let's start from a brief introduction. Uh, could you tell us more of uh, what is uh, your role right now? Uh, so I'm in this field of account management at Exacaster, which is fairly hard to define, uh, almost as hard as you're trying to define to your parents that you're working with computers. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of similar, uh, similarly hard to define what is account management. But generally, I would say it's about understanding the client's problem really well and then trying to draw this mental map in terms of what kind of a solution could address that particular issue. And then all the other processes are just related with that. So identifying mm-hmm. the problem and then coming up with a good solution. And, and everything in between, the, the, the consulting, the, the actual implementation, maybe some administration stuff. But I would say that the core of the account management somewhere kind of hovers around this, uh, this area. Um. Let's uh, move a bit to our core theme today. Mm-hmm. I know that you help companies to ex- uh, assess their customer value management maturity levels. And this is one part of your, you know, structuring everything into proper boxes uh, kind of uh, approaches, yeah? Could you tell us more about what is the customer value management maturity assessment? because we will be kind of ref- referencing this part later on. So mm-hmm. um, so I think that the best way to approach this topic is in, in the following way. So imagine uh, you are a new customer value manager in a telco, which is a big dark room. Um, you have a KPI of increasing uh, revenue from like the existing customer base. That's one of the typical KPIs that the customer value manager has. But you're in this dark room and you see that the revenue is not increasing or the revenue is stagnating or maybe it's even declining. But you have no clue where to start looking at. Like what is the problem? Because this dark room essentially prevents you from seeing what is wrong in the customer value management. Now, customer value management generally is a very wide area. It consists of many different fields, such as data, the offering process, tools, and many others. So this customer, like this uh, CVM maturity assessment is kind of like a flashlight that I give you in this dark room. So you could 
uh, lighten it up and understand which areas should you now focus on and improve in order to better reach your KPI. Mm -hmm. So I think this, this maturity assessment is all about that. It's just like focusing your attention as a customer value manager in this big, difficult machine just to get the, you know, the, the results that you want. You have uh, led many consulting projects in the CVM area. Uh, what would be your top two, three uh, challenges that teams usually ask you to help them to solve? Mm -hmm. So one of the very typical issues that arise in telcos is that different departments or different product lines within telecoms compete for the same customer base. So, for example, uh, you, re you represent the business line of um, um, mobile phone sales, and I represent the, sales, uh, the, the, the business line of the tariff plan uh, upgrades, and generally mobile tariff mm -hmm. plans. And we are competing for the same target base, meaning that you and I, we treat the customers, we are, we are trying to promote our products to as many customers as possible. And I'm trying to, prevent, uh, to promote my product to these customers, you're doing the same. Uh, and imagine in the real telco, we have multiple business lines and multiple, like, uh, multiple stakeholders trying to bombard them with, with messages. So one of the typical problems that I see is this extreme over-communication with the same customer. Uh, I understand the reasons why this happens, and it's mostly related with the incentive and the overall structure of the telecoms. But the idea is that if different business lines are competing for the same customers, and nobody cares about how to prioritize those offers on a customer level, then inevitably the customers are being bombarded with many, many different offers. Uh, and we had numerous cases or stories when people are being bombarded with offers, like multiple offers in, in a single day from different channels or, or anything like that. So I would say over severe over-communication is one issue. And by the way, it's important to understand that this over-communication is an issue because people uh, get immune to, to marketing messages over time. So for example, if you're receiving a newsletter every once half a year, then you're highly likely to open this new newsletter up, read the offers, especially if they're personalized, and maybe select one or two uh, to, to, you know, to buy or, or maybe to, at least to consider if, if they are needed for you. But if you receive such a newsletter every single day, then after three days, it's either you will automatically delete these emails or you just create a rule that, that your email will go to spam. And that's it. So, so this over-communication is a serious issue because people get immune and you will no longer reach them if you bombard them with, with messages. But this is what happens very frequently. So this very hard communication control across channels, I think, is, is one of the big challenges that telcos are uh, trying to solve. And then the other problem is, is, relate, is related with uh, offer relevance. So again, if you and I are competing for the same customers, we don't really care what the customer actually needs. We just want to push our product to as many people as possible. And then fingers crossed, at least some of them will buy it, buy the, buy the product. 
But again, if we are not taking the customer's perspective into account, then all the offers in the newsletters and uh, during the phone calls or whatever the channel the telco uses, it, they just call you and, and offer you something that you don't really need. And there are some anecdotal examples. Again, it's, it might sound like it's, uh, it's funny, and it, it is to some extent, but, but it's kind of normal, and it happens all the time. And this is, that's why it's one of the challenges in telcos, that they're trying to address it. So one of those, those uh, anecdotal situations is that uh, imagine you, yourself like buying a TV from a telco operator, even though the TV is not directly like a telco product, but it's one of the product offerings. And then immediately after a day or two, you receive a, a promotion for another TV that you can buy, which, which is obviously that doesn't make sense. If you bought a TV yesterday, th there's like a very high probability you will never, like you won't buy it in the upcoming foreseeable future, like two or three months. But, but, but these offerings keep like appearing and appearing and appearing, and they're irrelevant. So as long as you bombard your customers with irrelevant offers, they will never take them. And you need to do something about it. I, I also have... A kind of anecdotal situation, yeah. which is related with TV. Uh, so uh, my operator is sending me a promotion, um, promotion for uh, buy TV every two, three months. Mm -hmm. So I kind of called to my agent and said, hey guys, please don't send me, I don't need it, <laughs> uh, etc. But I, I still keep uh, getting the same offer. So eventually I, I, I had to uh, uh, kind of to um, uh, make sure that they don't send me any message yeah. at all. Yeah. Kind of, uh, you, you need to disconnect from the, from the communication. That's another potential consequence that is not favorable for, for a telco. If a person says, you know, I, I, I no longer want to be communicated by you, mm -hmm. uh, contacted by you, then it's the end, right? Then you kind of cut your, your hand and yeah. it's very hard to reach that customer. So, so when we are in CVM, we, we usually are in the KPIs of uh, ARPU, mm -hmm. of churn management, uh, of churn reduction. Um, what are the kind of common bottlenecks that you see for the telcos that they actually hit when they try to improve their processes mm -hmm. that would lead to bigger ARPU uh, and uh, reduced churn? Um. So I observed this tendency, which is again very popular, uh, at least among the telcos I worked with. Um, telcos usually have these grand ambitions, what they want to transform and implement. And I'm very up for grand ambitions. And obviously the, the top CEOs are usually paid for having not like these tiny improvements, but for, for having something big in mind. But it, specifically talking about the CVM, um, it's very problematic when you want to implement something very grand when you don't have the very basics in place. Now, what I mean is that currently uh, machine learning is extremely popular among customer value managers, and everyone is wants to get into this train and use machine learning uh, in order to target more accurately, to offer uh, more relevant offers, uh, and to earn more money. The problem is that if you don't have a fully functioning automated process based on business rules first, then you trying to implement this machine learning based process 
will cost a lot and you will never have a benchmark like to compare whether this machine learning is paying off, is it working better than the business rules. And recently I, I had this uh, example with one of the European telcos. Um, that telco built an excellent offering process based on machine learning. Um, they spent quite a bit of money on that and we are talking in the ballpark of like tens of millions of euros. It's insanely expensive. And uh, they achieved a certain result. Now we benchmarked this result with a typical, like a benchmark that we have, what, what are the typical conversions when uh, implementing these fully automated business rules. And we've seen that the conversions are the same, or in some cases they are even lower than the, the typical like a process based on business rules. And so here's the question. So if you can achieve uh, the same outcome with a 10 times lower investment, because implementing, like automating the process and implementing simple business rules is obviously a lot more cheaper, a lot cheaper than, than you know, following these machine learning practices. Not because machine learning is expensive, but because people who develop and maintain these models are expensive. Data scientists are expensive. So, so one of the issues, one of the bottlenecks that I observe is that people try to jump and adopt the cutting edge without having the basics, and then they inevitably find themselves in this um, strange situation when you know, you're all excited, you invest a lot of money, but then the output is limited, but your investment was really large. And then the, the entire business case starts shaking. So from my point of view, starting with the basics, trying to automate the process and implementing the business rules in this CVM process, and then using the machine learning as a, um, as a champion or like a challenger to your like existing champion model, and then trying to compare and improve um, incrementally step by step without investing tens of billions of euros into the model to develop everything from scratch is a more sustainable strategy. So that's one of the bottlenecks that I see. Okay. And the, the other bottleneck that is also very popular and the telcos love it, is um, generally speaking, there are two ways how to implement a transformation in the field of customer value management. You can either try to go case by case across the entire CVM process. And by, by CVM process, I mean this data prep, um, targeting solution, offering, communication via specific channels, and then some maybe reporting and, and conversion tracking. This is the, the logical chain, like the the, the data flow uh, of the CVM process. So you can try to take a single use case um, and implement it from start to end, right? This is one way of how to, how to do a transformation. The other way is you can take the entire area, such as like data warehousing or the offering solution or the reporting and try to fix this process stage by stage for all the use cases. So for example, instead of uh, fixing a, a minor part of the data warehouse that would kind of improve the process in the, your particular use case, you're saying, okay, let's revamp the entire data warehouse. And again, from, so from my experience, working case by case is much better uh, because we are able to reach a measurable outcome in a 
wise, like in a proper amount of time. Whenever telcos try to implement everything all at once, meaning like, let's revamp our data warehouse, let's change our offering solution from like business rules to machine learning, and let's do everything at once, this approach fails because the focus is scattered, the resources are scattered, and everything is super slow. So this is the, the, the second bottleneck that I see. Instead of going case by case, which from my experience works better, telcos opt for this, let's do everything at once because everything is important, and then everything is super slow. Uh, why, why do you think uh, kind of doing this big bang type of approach uh, is uh, one of the more common choices uh, between larger organizations? I, uh, I assume it's mostly related with the structures of the companies, uh, of telcos, because telcos are big organizations, and usually each of this area has different owners. So whenever uh, a CVM manager comes to you, for example, as the head of BI or head of data, and we say, okay, so we only now need to change like a very small fraction of the data warehouse because we're building this use case and your part is just like 15% of the total effort and everything else will be related with, with other areas. So I think it's very risky for you to, to try to make this change or it's hard because you kind of need to operate this and isolate this sub-environment for this sub-use case. And instead, you'd be, you'd be more inclined to revamp everything because in the long run, revamping everything kind of makes sense, but it just takes a long time. So instead of like fixing a piece, you'd like to revamp the entire data warehouse. So I think that it's mostly related with the structure and maybe some reluctance to, to fix a portion. Maybe even there, are, there could be some technical limitations that in some cases you just can't fix it, like a tiny proportion uh, of, yeah. of the data warehouse and it, it necessarily impacts the other parts. Okay, so um, imagine that uh, the CVM team comes and says, hey Ignaz, please help us to yeah. improve our processes. Uh, uh, we have this huge challenge, we need to grow the ARPU by 25% yeah. by the end of the year. And uh, they say, help me. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, you mentioned that usually you start from giving the flashlight in, into yeah. some areas. So what are the typical areas that you are searching for, let's say, the challenges or bottlenecks first? Mm -hmm. So one big area is, of course, the data. Mm -hmm. Because the entire CVM process is mostly uh, fed by, by data. And if the data is insufficient, non-existent, or just bad, uh, the entire process suffers. So the first big chunk is this data management. Um, and uh, there are several challenges that usually mm -hmm. happen in the data world. So the, the obvious one is data quality. So if, if there is no uh, dedicated person who is actually responsible for monitoring the quality, or if there, the, the quality can be also monitored automatically, these notifications can come up. But it's not usually implemented and there's usually no one dedicated or responsible for making sure that this data quality is, is being improved. And what do you mean by data quality? Just kind of, uh, uh, can you give us some examples mm. of uh, extreme um, situations? 
Yeah, so, so for example, um, CVM, CVM process and specifically the next best offer algorithm um, needs an offer catalog, an offer catalog of products in order to assign the specific offer for a specific customer. But if the offer catalog is crafted in such a way that the, the data is not insightful, then you know, the entire process breaks down. So one of the examples, uh, one of the things that we see with the offer catalog is that um, offer catalog is typically uh, this one cell that contains a lot of different information in a text form, which is non-workable. You, you just can't work with that, uh, with that data, right? So when you have like a number and the text and the explanation and the description, and the recommendation in a, in a single cell. There are ways how to overcome it, but generally it's, it's, it's kind of bad. You need to fix it. You, you have to separate the, the details in order to start working with it. Um, so this is, this is the easy case. Okay. The hard case is when you just have errors in the data, when you have blanks, when you have um, some numbers that are a consequence of being like data being imported from some legacy systems and you need to spot this because they if, if you put in the garbage into your model or into your rules then you get the garbage out so you need to monitor it you, you need to make sure that the data is full it's consistent if that's a date that you're looking for in this field that it's an actual date and it makes sense there are no errors etc so this is the kind of daily issues that we face okay so what are the other areas outside the data? Because uh, mm -hmm. CVM, as you said, it touches every, all, all yeah. parts of our organization. Yeah. So, so the other, uh, the other uh, big area is the information about the customer, or generally, as we call it, the, the customer insight. That how well do you know the customer you're dealing with? Uh, and the most typical issues in this field um, are related with the communication step. And the communication meaning that the sales channel is trying to communicate the offer to the end customer. Uh, one of the typical issues is that the channel used is determined by the telco, even though all the customers are different and I may have a different preference for me being contacted than you. For example, I really prefer and value the email channel, but uh, you can't really reach uh, any, like a person via the email channel who is, for example, a senior citizen in, in the society. So this channel tailoring to the customer is one of the typical issues that we have. And the issue is that the telcos are not collecting the information about the channel preference at all. Meaning that customer value managers or campaign managers decide that, okay, so we have this offer, we have this product, now let's bombard customers via the call center. Why the call center? Well, because that's our campaign but not because the, the, the customer wants to be reached via this channel. And it's really powerful. If, if you really are able to select the preferred channel and follow it in, in many cases, obviously it's not possible to follow it in all the cases, but if you're able to follow it in at least some of the cases, then you really, you really personalize that experience for the customer. So it's important, like channel selection. Um, the second point is regarding the communication frequency. Um, again, Telcos very often do not control communication frequency on a high level. They usually control it on a channel level. So for example, they create a rule that you cannot, as a call center, you cannot call the same person more than like once per, I don't know, 
three weeks or four weeks or one month, whatever. But this rule doesn't apply to any other channels. So even if I can't, as a telco, I can't call you more often, I can send you emails or I can send you messages. But as we talked at the very beginning, it's also, it, it doesn't work because the client doesn't distinguish these interactions channel by channel. I don't care how you contact me. Uh, like, I don't want to get interactions from your telco more than, than I want, right? So, so telco have to be very careful in coordinating those channels and controlling the frequency and, yeah, this, irrespective of the specific channel. So if I, if I made a call yesterday for the client, that doesn't mean that I can send an email tomorrow, right? That, that's the, the logic. So like communication control across channels is super important. Okay, can we make a, a brief pause here? Of course. Because uh, uh, you started from the, in the beginning with the idea that uh, usually uh, we have a structure where there are different uh, value managers for different products yeah. and they are competing for the same customer. At the same time, we have many, many, many channels. Yes. <laughs> and their yes. preferences, etc. So we have this super uh, challenging pro problem, yeah? Uh, have you seen any examples where this problem was actually solved when the coordination between kind of teams, products, and channels were ach uh, achieved uh, kind of in the best way possible? Mm -hmm. So I haven't seen a perfect example. Okay. Um, most of the telcos I've been working with are trying to become more customer-centric, meaning that they're in, in this entire chaos of operations, they're trying to bring in this additional constraint of what the customer really wants and needs. And then the telcos are trying to balance out all the different area managers and they're saying, okay, so let's try, for example, let's try to calculate the, the probability that the person would buy your specific product and let's calculate these probabilities for all the business lines and all the offerings and only try to expose and communicate the offers which have, for example, the highest probability. In, in a sense, this is a way how to overcome this over-communication and select only one of the products which could be most relevant to the customer instead of bombarding the, the customer with all the, all the offers we have through across uh, numerous channels. So there's no perfect implementation. I think that there's always a clash within the telco because telcos are structured in such a way that they're like structured in different business lines, but they're countering that by trying to uh, overpower this conflict with the customer's perspective trying to calculate those probabilities and trying to prioritize, okay, so what kind of products should we offer for what customer th through which channel? So some of, the, some of the telcos actually collect data on the channel preference and they are able to, to uh, capitalize on that. Uh, so it st still sounds like a super challenging pro problem. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the clients I was working with uh, actually uh, asked me, he, he said, Ignaz, look, everything you say makes perfect sense. But is it actually possible, like in the real life, to build a fully customer-centric uh, telecom from scratch? And what was your answer? So my answer was that, yeah, if you're building a telecom from scratch, like we're establishing a new telco today, 
it's highly likely that we can build it in a customer-centric way because we need to design the organization to work based on the customer preference. But if you have an existing telco which has all these constraints and these structures predefined, and these are like mammoth organizations, then uh, kind of forcing them to, to, to become customer-centric is very painful and it's hard. And it's very hard to achieve this end state it doesn't mean it's not worth trying, but it's it's very, very, very hard. Okay. So I don't have this illusion that all the telcos will become customer-centric, mm -hmm. but if they at least try to become a little more, like incorporate this customer voice into their existing uh, processes and procedures, that's already a good step in, in a good direction. So, uh, well, so we touched on data part. We touched a bit on the uh, channel part. What are mm -hmm. other uh, areas uh, that you are actually searching for the challenges next? Mm -hmm. um, so one of the issues that is very frequent among telecoms, again, part of the offering process and a little bit part of the data that we discussed already, um, was the offer relevance. And this offer relevance, to some extent, depends on how frequently do you recalculate your recommendations. So telcos are trying to recalculate their recommendations more frequently. Some of them face some uh, constraints. Um, and then the typical issue arises when if, if you only recalculate your offering once per month, that means that you know I come to the shop, I buy my new voice plan, and for the upcoming 20 days, I still receive the same recommendation, which is no longer valid. I mean, I already took it, so it doesn't make sense, right? So this... Recalc moving towards recalculating the offers once per day, I think is a, well, it's a kind of a gold standard at the moment. Uh, maybe in the future they'll be able to recalculate it even more frequently, but for now I think daily recalculation is something that they usually uh, target, and that, that really helps to, to solve this offering process. And one, one other interesting point is in, in so in one example, uh, in one of the telcos we've worked with, they had a very good offering process in place, but it faced relatively limited conversions in the inbound channel. And by inbound, I mean the shop, the physical shop that the customer usually comes in and, and buys a specific service. Um, and so we started uh, digging in because the NBO process was good. It was, I mean, everything was solid. The data was okay, the, the process was fine but somehow the conversions were very limited, almost non-existent. And then we tried to understand, so what's happening? And then we realized that it's not, the, the, the offering process is not only about calculating a good offer, but it's also about uh, making sure that this offer is communicated to the client. So what we found in that particular case, that the system design, like the user interface was built in such a way, again, the, the, the reason is clear, the root cause was that they had many legacy systems, but essentially if you are an agent and you're trying to sell an offer, you have to navigate through like 10 or 20 different pages in four different systems to get a hold of the overall like the customer profile and then on, on many other systems to get a hold of what, what are the, these calculated offers uh, for, the, for the customer, what, what are the NBOs that are calculated by the system. So the root cause is that if it's inconvenient for the agent to reach 
the offer, he or she will never open it. They will always improvise because they have a very limited uh, amount of time. And if the, the information is inconveniently laid out, that's an issue. So that's, again, one of the typical challenges when you can have a wonderful process in place about how the offers are calculated, but then it fails at the very last step when it's just inconveniently visualized for agents, and the agents will never do that, will never spend, like, waste their time trying to access these difficult systems. So that's, again, one of the examples that, uh, where the challenges lie. And as you can see, they, they can be all across the spectrum. I mean, from... And this sounds like uh, kind of uh, you can find the challenge at a, uh, any place yeah. in the organization. Yeah. So um, if we think kind of uh, how companies can identify their challenges uh, by themselves. So because you talked a lot, uh, you help to step in, dig deep, find the root cause, mm -hmm. help to address that root cause. Uh, what would be your advice how companies could run similar process internally without any external help? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that if you are a, an experienced customer value manager and you have a good visibility of the end-to-end -end process, starting with data, the offering process, the, the targeting solution, the channels, and the, the activation or the, on the conversion reporting, whatever, if you have the full visibility of this end-to-end -end process, then you are highly likely, then you can try to identify those failures and root causes on your own. You can have like a team made up of different people in your company and you can try doing it yourself. And it's, it's highly likely that you'll be fairly successful. The typical issue is that customer value managers are usually, their viewpoint is usually very limited, as in they don't have this visibility into other pieces of the puzzle, which I refer to as the dark room. So, for example, they don't have good visibility in the data uh, sphere. They don't have good visibility about what happens when the offer reaches the channel. They know about the final outcome, but they, they are not entirely sure how this internal process is being organized and what are the bottlenecks. So in theory, I would say, yeah, if, if you are experienced and you, if you have full visibility, then you can definitely try to do it internally within your own team. Um, but the, the, the benefit of having this external help, if you opt for it, is that um, usually external consultants have this full framework and they get access to a wider organization. So they, by, by flashlight, I mean, we, we lit up the room and, we, and then we're able to say, okay, so you know, these are the areas that fail and that's what you can do. So consultants are not uh, necessary, but they're often helpful in, in like lighting up this room. If you can do it yourself, that's perfect. Then mm -hmm. definitely go for it. But in many telcos we've worked with, uh, they're more siloed, as in every single department is kind of a mystery dark room, like a separate room. And it's very hard to kick in if, if you're like a customer value manager. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you just work like a bridge between a siloed parts yeah, of exactly. the organization. Exactly, exactly. And during many workshops, actually, I've observed and it's kind of funny, but it's also very rewarding at the same time when people from different parts of the organization get into a single room 
And then we talk about the issues that we discovered and they're like, oh, really? Oh my God, we never thought that this is the case. We never thought that it's happening. Why didn't you tell us earlier? So it seems that this, this barrier in, term, like in between the different parts of the organization is still valid. And it's one of the ways how to overcome it. Uh, sounds uh, super simple advice. Get uh, in the, in one room yeah. and start talking. Yeah. You know? yeah, exactly, exactly. And if if you're able to do that, if you're able to achieve that, then the, again, this is one of the success criteria for this internal uh, transformation. And then external, uh, like the value of these external consultants will be really limited. But if you see that you're failing at this, that it's very hard to achieve or it doesn't work, then I think it makes sense to, to hire somebody from the outside. Mm -hmm. So... Um, you have uh, kind of uh, reached uh, the point when uh, you, you went uh, through uh, with the teams, uh, with this customer value management, maturity assessment, you brought everybody into one room. Uh, can you talk uh, a little bit about uh, several success cases that you are proud of uh, in this process? Mm -hmm. um, so bringing people into a single room Definitely works. Definitely works. Um, but this is only the, the very first step into achieving something which is useful for the telco because the, the output of this consulting project, so to speak, is just areas that you have to fix. It's like clarity on the next step, what you need to do in order to unlock the value. Um, but, but so after you know where to go after this consulting project ends, then you need to take action, right? And so we had, we had several examples. So one of the telcos we've, we've been working with uh, faced this serious issue of, again, as I mentioned, over-communication with the clients. Uh, and the problem was twofold. So one, they were spamming the customers because they didn't really know through which channel to which client have they already sent the message. And the second problem was that one channel wasn't aware about the communication with that particular customer in the other channel. So for instance, if I receive an offer and I come to the shop regarding that offer and I want to consult with you as an agent in the shop, you say, look, I, I don't know what kind of offer you received, but maybe I have something better. Here you go, <laughs> right? Okay. So that, that was the second issue. And, and so both of these issues had a very elegant solution. So what we did, essentially we developed this customer 360 profile, oh, a big table with many different attributes about that specific customer, which also included the outbound communication log, which essentially, again, part of the table which logs what kind of offers you communicated to that customer via which channels. And this simple piece of table allowed that telecom to, one, better control the communication, because if you see that you already sent the email yesterday, maybe you will not send the message today, right? And then it also allowed the telco to expose this information to all the agents working in, in inbound channels, such as shops, and those agents, when, whenever a person approaches them, they can check what kind of offers were, were sent to that customer and continue the conversation about that particular offer if the, if the customer was interested. So again, it's a long journey from consulting, but from being in the same room and understanding that we are spamming the customers and our sales agents have no clue what offers have we communicated before, to achieving this state of we're not spamming the customers 
and the customers appreciate it because I think that Telco also launched this Net Promoters Score survey and the, the, the score increased because the clients felt less bombarded with offers without hurting the conversions, right? So there's obviously always a concern for the telco that if we communicate less, people will start buying less. So no, this didn't happen in that particular case. The NPS, like the satisfaction went up, the conversions weren't hurt. Um, and I think that the, the customers like in the long run will definitely uh, appreciate this, this case. Uh, very inspiring story. Yeah. Um, From your perspective, what are the kind of key elements for successful um, pro uh, projects that help to shape the CVM processes? Yeah, from let's say the stage that you identified the, the challenge till the stage when you actually get the result. Um, so we have experienced success only with those clients that demonstrated a very genuine buy-in from the very beginning. Um, so whenever we're launching this consulting project, we essentially, we are collecting inputs from various stakeholders in the organization. And our entire quality of, of assessment and this, like the, the strengths of, the strength of the light coming from your flashlight depends on what kind of inputs are provided by the stakeholders. So the crucial success factor on which depends the, the entire, essentially the, the success of the project is how open and how involved these people are. Now we are not uh, asking to involve the entire telco organization of like 2000 plus personnel. We are selecting like top uh, 10 or, or like 12 people who are re respective owners of, of each of the area. But if they are involved, if they uh, give us this honest and open feedback, then we're able to build this comprehensive picture of what is happening in the telco. And then our conclusions become valid. And then it makes sense to implement them. And then if you follow through, you get the result. But if, if, there's, like, if the stakeholders are not involved from the very beginning, you know, then the entire causal chain just breaks down. So I, yeah, I, I would say that this buy-in is, is super uh, important. And, and the second one that I mentioned already is the, the action, right? So if, if you listen to nice consultants uh, doing the recommendation presentation, but then you don't take any action, then there's no worth in it. Like it's, it's just thin air. But if you follow through, then you get the result. And maybe the last uh, question for you about uh, this area. Yeah. Uh, what, what would be your advice uh, for the customer value management teams that want to be ahead of the curve? So not fixing the basics, mm -hmm. but actually being far ahead of everyone else. Mm -hmm. uh, but but that's, that's, that might sound counterintuitive. And I know I'm being the unpopular kid in the block, I mean, but, but, but here's my personal take. So uh, if you want to be ahead of the curve, First of all, you have to get the basics right. Because if you are jumping into the train with this machine learning and you want to be like top of the line, you, you're very likely to fail or not necessarily fail, but you'll spend a lot of money and you'll get mediocre results. But the true way to adopting the cutting edge from my, from my personal point of view is that you should um, have the basics 
and then you should iterate. You should adopt these new technologies and use A-B testing to see what works in reality. Don't try to, to build something super innovative from scratch. Innovate, like do, make a step in the basics and then try to refine it and, and, and measure what are the results. And in often, often times, you will see that these uh, popular things that other telcos are pursuing are not necessarily the best in terms of generating the, the outcome. And by f I, I think that A-B testing is the only genuine way of seeing whether it works or not. And so having the basics right and then doing the granular, like incremental A-B testing is the way to go. And by doing it well enough, by, iterate, by iterating many times, I think this is the path towards the, the cutting edge. Uh, and, and not trying to adopt it blindly. That's, that's my personal take. Uh, sounds, uh, uh, sounds like a good advice, you know? Yeah, it may sound boring, though, uh, because, you know, it's if, oh my God, we're not adopting machine learning, f f like, in all the spheres we're working yeah. in. But, but I think this is, it's kind of a, a safe way from both the business perspective, in order not to lose money and achieve mediocre results, and very good in terms of, CVM advancement when you can measure things uh, and you have something to measure it against that is your current process. And if, if, if you can't measure the two, then you know whatever the technologies you adopt, they might sound cool, but everyone in the organization will understand that it's not working and they're not going to use it. So why the waste? Uh, when you work uh, with uh, uh, customer value management teams and with the management teams, it's uh, uh, usually it's quite a stressful work, a lot of challenges happening at the same time, the deadlines are tight, etc. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance uh, your kind of work and uh, what you do outside of work? So one of the ways how I de-stress myself is with this slightly non-conventional traveling. Um, I really like to choose destinations which might not be of your like top destinations you'd ever want to go to. Um, some of those destinations are exotic, others are hard to reach. Um, and generally, you know, I just put my backpack on, uh, find some company uh, of people who are like-minded and who are like similarly crazy to, to, to go there. And then, yeah. Uh, I just start traveling. So, so um, at some at some point in my life, I needed to de-stress so much that I actually went to the Indonesian jungle, and uh, we've spent I don't know four or five days just literally living in the jungle in in this strange wooden hut, uh, which which had like no interior whatsoever, and it's it's not like a five-star hotel made into like the wooden hut. It's like a, literally a wooden hut in the middle of the jungle without anything. And if you need to take a shower, you just go to the nearby river and just take off your clothes and then you just bathe within the, like, within the river flow and then watch these huge-ass iguanas just passing by, you know? And the, it's, you know, it's something... And I understand that most people would never do this because it's just not convenient and they might not enjoy it. But I feel that this is the way for me to, to you know, to connect and to de-stress. So, so one of the areas is, of course, this kind of change in your surroundings and living in the jungle. But the other important aspect that I truly enjoy is connecting with local people in those countries I'm traveling in. Um, 
because local people are much better in showing you what's their real life all about, much better than the tour agencies do. So uh, whenever I can, I, I try to uh, live with locals, um, to just to find them, try to get in touch with them, and spend a couple of nights in, in one family or the other family. And I have multiple stories of uh, you know families feeding us during the Ramadan, uh, Islamic families, when they couldn't like eat themselves, but they were preparing food separately for us because we were their guests. So, you know, many bizarre stories, but this is the way for me to de-stress and this is the way for me to, uh, yeah, just to, to, to feel that I'm alive. Uh, what do you uh, learn from these uh, trips, basically? What do you take off? I, I know you, you get relaxed, etc., mm. but uh, how do these uh, uh, trips transform, let's say, your daily uh, life? Yeah. So, so during one of the trips, during one of the first trips, I actually encountered my... Um, biggest hobby yet um, and I started scuba diving. Now scuba diving uh, is a little bit technical so you need to get the basics first before you can actually put on a tank and uh, deep dive. Um, but um, going through the way to achieving these multiple scuba diving certifications essentially um, gave me this confidence boost that I can learn anything I want in any field as long as I am, one, truly and genuinely interested in that field, and two, I have means or just access to some good quality learning materials. It's either like books or, um, or teachers, professors, online courses, podcasts, whatever. So, so scuba diving just taught me that, you know, I thought it's really hard to do and maybe it's not for me, but when I did it, I realized, okay, so it, I kind of see the pattern now. And uh, if I want to learn anything, any new skill, and scuba diving just happened to be the first skill that I was truly interested in, which is not directly related with my work, but it's related with this personal satisfaction. Uh, and again, one of the means to, to disconnect from the stress. I realized that, you know, why not? Then I can also learn how to deal with people. I can also learn how to uh, be in those difficult situations, how to put out fires, how to, uh, how to directly address the client when the situation might be uh, going off-road. So, yeah. Okay, so, sounds su su super inspiring. So, Ignas, let's change the topic. Okay. Uh, let's move to the wrap-up stage. Okay. Um, so, over those years, what was your proudest moment in your career? Um, <sighs> So I don't have this specific moment in my career. Uh, I can describe generally the, 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 the moments when I feel generally proud. Uh, and these moments are when I feel that I, good, uh, that I did a, a great job. And from this account management perspective, I would say there are two points in time when I feel uh, particularly pr proud. So the first one is... Uh, when we finally agree with the client that the solution that we jointly described and proposed makes sense and the client is willing to invest uh, a portion of, of, uh, of money into this because the client believes that this will help him or her address the problem that the telco has. Which, and it, it's usually like the, the signature of the contract, but it, it's not because we are uh, 
like earning the revenue at that point, but because the, I did my job well, because I really uh, managed to identify the root cause well, and I managed to build this good mental map and propose something that, that actually addresses the problem and that the client believes that this will help him or her. So that's the point number one, when I feel, okay, so I did a good job, that means that you know, I'm doing at least something I'm doing right. And then the second point is after we implement the project and uh, we achieve some sort of resu result, um, if I get a call from a customer, like a very informal call, just like, I don't know, during the lunch break saying, you know, Ignas, you guys did a really good job. I, re I really feel that we are now spending less time on these terrible situations and we don't have these or we have much fewer terrible situations and we feel that the process is stable and everything works. Like you delivered on what you promised to deliver. And then I am like, I'm lit like a candle. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm being proud all day, you know, or walking in the office and, and you know, so, so that's, that's the second moment for me when I'm super proud. Th these are the, these two points combined are the, the moments uh, when I feel super happy. So in between those moments, there's a lot of hard work in between. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I assume you had some failures as well. For sure. Can you, can you describe some of your biggest failures? Um, uh, so uh, at the time uh, when, when those failures happened, it, it wasn't funny at all. Now it's kind of, I'm more relaxed about them. Um, so so one, of the, one of the failures uh, happened with, actually in the field of account management, primarily because, because of the, most likely because of the lack of experience. Um, so we were in the project delivery phase and we had some serious collaboration issues with the customer because the, again, the, the telco was a, a big customer and uh, the success of the project depended on the efforts of, on both sides uh, of the delivery team. So like part of the delivery was on us, part of, part of the delivery was actually implemented by the client. And we've seen that there are some, some issues uh, on, the, on the client side. And um, we, we had our primary uh, stakeholder working on the client side. And I felt that communicating with that stakeholder was very, very hard. And I decided to take a shortcut. Uh, instead of like trying, even though that was the hard way, um, I, was, uh, I, I really wanted to solve the problem directly with that stakeholder, but I realized that it would be much faster and much more efficient if I circumvented that stakeholder and went directly to, to top management to, to clearly like lay out all the cards and then have a resolution in like days instead of like spending weeks. And that was such a big mistake. I mean, um, we did manage to solve that problem, but I've lost the stakeholder, like the level below stakeholder, and uh, that, that person was super mad at me because I, I kind of circumvented and pushed him under the train instead of trying to solve this problem directly with the person, even though the end result was good, but my relationship was completely destroyed with that. And, and it took me like more than, than a year and a half to restore and to make sure, like to build this trust again from scratch because, you know, I, I, was, I opted for the, for the shortcut. I felt it was more efficient. Maybe it was, but it wasn't in terms of like maintaining good relationships with people. So 
I wouldn't do it again. Uh, that was a very hard lesson, and I was I was extremely sad that that was a huge failure. Um, but then, hopefully, yeah, um, th th that's that's part of the people skills that you learn as you go 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 ahead. Sounds like a very tough situation. I yeah, would, I wouldn't want to yeah, be in that yeah. situation. Yeah, no, it was super tense, super tense. So it's it's funny when I think about it retrospectively, but I wouldn't like to go over it again because that was stressful, really. So we ask everybody uh, mm -hmm. uh, who are here. We ask uh, a book or a recommendation mm -hmm. uh, that would help to understand better the field that you are working it, mm -hmm. in. So what would be your recommendation? Um, so uh, as we started this conversation uh, about the clarity of thought and uh, like being able to structure your minds and ideas in a way others could understand, I think one of the great books that I read that inspired me a lot uh, is called uh, Problem Solving 101, a, a simple book for smart people. I think that's the title. I can't remember the author uh, yet. It's, the author actually was a management consulting himself. Um, and it's like a at first, when I started reading the book, I thought that it's a book for children um, because it's written in such an easy way with some cartoonish pictures all around. But it essentially, it enlightens and explains very clearly what is the logic of problem solving and what kind of structure you should follow in order to address any kind of problem that you face in life or in business or you know, whatever else. So don't be fooled by the cartoonish pictures. It's a very short, uh, short book, but it really gives you a good insight into what is this structure of problem solving in, in very simple terms. No, no specific jargon needed, uh, but very eloquent. So I, I really love that book very much. Uh, so this is overall about the, the thought structuring. And then thinking about what is what book reflects my job, like my daily job, even though problem solving is part of my job. I really enjoyed, um, I'm very terrible with remembering the authors. I really enjoyed the book, which is called The Major Sales Account Strategy, the one that I actually borrowed from Eugidius. Um, and it's, it, it, again, in a very well-structured way, explains what is the sales process overall when working in, in, in B2B. So I think this kind of sums up very well what I do here at, uh, at Exacaster. So th these would be the two books I would uh, recommend to read. Thank you, Ignas. It was a pleasure to have, you, uh, to have you here. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to CVM Stories. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. You can also ask us a question about a particular customer value management challenge you have at work. We will happily ask our experts to tackle your challenge in a future episode. 